Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. So you might have heard tell that there's election season again. I I know it's weird because we don't really have an off season to elections anymore. The election cycle seems to be never ending. Folks are already jumping ahead to the midterms. Some folks that only focus on the presidential level, they're already talking about 2024. Well, there was actually an election this week. There was a special election down in Texas. We've had other special elections. But the special election in Texas actually has a lot of the narratives that we're going to be seeing playing out through the 2022 midterm. Uh, It was Republican on Republican, but it did have kind of the elephant in the room. Former President Donald Trump, who endorsed the candidate, but his candidate that he endorsed lost. Now, with the former president already taking sides in some of the 2022 Republican primaries and endorsing folks, Is this a harbinger? Is it just a one-off that we shouldn't pay attention to? So we're going to turn down the noise on the election cycles, and we're going to turn to our friend Eric Cunningham. Now, he's the founder and editor-in-chief of Elections Daily. This is a group of folks that is growing, that is an independent voice in how to cover elections. Uh, They really give us good information and good data. I've been using them since they started, and I would encourage you all to check them out. But we're going to ask him about these things. What is Donald Trump's role going to be in the 2022 midterms? Places like in North Carolina, where you have a complicated primary with some really fascinating moving pieces, and former President Trump has already jumped in with an endorsement that's kind of baffled some people and angered some of his Republican allies. What about big national names like the Bush family, George P. Bush in Texas, that he spurned with an endorsement? How do all these things line up? We're also going to talk about the general election environment. Why is it that folks think the 2022 midterms are going to be really good with Republicans and how that doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on in real time? Why is it that the out-of-power party usually does really well the first election after a new president is elected? We're going to talk about all these things with Eric Cunningham, who just gives us good data from right down the middle, tells us the way it is. He knows a lot of stuff. We're going to listen, we're going to learn, and we're going to discuss elections today, right after this on Herd Tell. We have Eric Cunningham from Elections Daily, uh, who I have a lot of respect for because he not only talks a good game, they went out and set up their own thing. They have really got to make their own name for themselves doing elections, and he's become a really good friend. Eric, how are you, my buddy? I'm doing great. It's a nice day outside. Um, how about you? Uh, it's a nice day outside, and we're in the closet shooting a podcast with you, so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now nah, we're now, nah, man. Uh, who's got it better than us, though? Life is good, and very excited for the ex- success of Elections Daily. Y'all are doing great. Uh, just real quick for the folks listening that may not be familiar with your work, I've got to kind of watch that from the ground floor up. But let people know what it is you do at Elections Daily, and why we brought you on to Herd Tell to talk elections today. 
Oh, yeah. So uh, Elections Daily is a nonpartisan election uh, news reporting website. We cover elections broadly, also politics in general. Uh, we started this back in late 2019. Uh, I had gotten a degree in journalism in 2018. That was what I graduated from Appalachian State with uh, in the summer of 2018. And, uh, you know, I've been mostly my day jobs marketing, but I've always wanted to do the more journalism stuff and specifically politics. And so I thought there was an opportunity in the middle. Um, you know, you have most of the election news in particular tends to be one side or the other. You go to daily cost elections and it's always left leaning news. And that's fine. There's a place for that. You go to RRH elections, who we've worked with before on polls and on other things, and they're leaning, they skew to the right. It's in the name. Uh, we're not either of them. We're in the middle. Uh, that doesn't mean people don't have opinions, but it does mean that we don't have a perspective that we're trying to push. Uh, we're not promoting a candidate or promoting a cause. And so I think that opens up a lot of flexibility into how we can report on things. And it's, I think, led to a lot of our growth because we appeal to, uh, we have followers on both sides. We have contributors on both sides. Our editorial staff is evenly divided between uh, both political parties, and I'd say even broadly speaking, between liberals, moderates, and conservatives. So, you know, it's a uh, um, we've had a lot of success and we've experienced some growth and we're really, really thankful for everyone's support as we've, you know, made kind of a name for ourselves in the last few years uh, in, in, in this small, you know, this relatively niche field of election reporting. Yeah. And I've used you as a resource. Uh, of course, I work with uh, Ordinary Times. You wrote for us a time or two. We got some overlap. Mm -hmm. I've used you for radio before. You're a great resource for me. So I encourage people to check you guys out at elections-daily.com. There are elections going on. A lot of people may not realize it. We actually have had a election of some note just this week, haven't we, down in Texas. Uh, this was a special election, but it does have a lot of the narratives that we've been seeing nationally playing into it. Uh, tell us about this Texas special election that happened on Tuesday night. Yeah, so for those who aren't familiar with the term special election, because there may be people who are who are not up to date with the term, is that basically regular elections for Congress are held every two years, uh, two basically all of the House representatives, and then about a third, roughly speaking, of the 100 Senate seats. There's one cycle that has 34, and then the other two have 33. So those elections are the regular general elections. Special elections happen when there's a vacancy in a, in a seat. Usually this occurs because of resignations. Uh, you know, People res resign for a lot of reasons. Some resign to be with their family more. Uh, that was the case last year, or uh, in 20, 2019 or 2020. A representative from uh, Wisconsin, his wife had a child who was uh, ill, and he resigned to help care for his child. Uh, sometimes they resign to start do another job. Sometimes they resign because they're going to prison. But sometimes the seats open up because someone, a candidate dies, a representative dies in office. And we've had sadly two of those uh, this year. We had uh, Louisiana had a special election. The representative elect in that district, Luke Letlow, uh, sadly died of COVID before he could be seated. And so there was a special election very soon afterwards, which elected his widow, uh, Julia Letlow, uh, who was a very qualified candidate in her own right and uh, romped to victory. Uh, this one also opened because of a vacancy. Texas 6, this is based in uh, parts of Fort Worth or uh, Tarrant County, which is Fort Worth, Texas, Arlington in particular here, and then a couple of other rural counties. Uh, it was a competitive district in November. Uh, Trump won it by three points, which is down from previous elections, but the rep the representative in the seat, Ron Wright, won, won re-election fairly easily by closer to like a 10-point margin. Uh, sadly, though, shortly after he took office, he died of complications of, of cancer and COVID. And so the seat became vacant. Uh, like in Louisiana, his widow, Susan Wright, ran for the seat in his stead. Uh, she was endorsed by President Trump immediately. And a lot of conservative heavy hitters 
In fact, the brunt of conservative heavy hitters. And what was interesting about this race at first was it was a what's called a jungle primary, which is basically a bunch of candidates all on one ticket. Uh, you vote for one of them, and then the top two go to the runoff. So what happened in the, in the, the primary was Susan Wright finished first by a decent margin. She got 19% of the vote. Normally, in these cases, a Democrat, she's a Republican, a Democrat would get normally the second most votes, uh, especially in a competitive seat like this. But Democrats actually had a really bad night. Their candidate, uh, Yana Sanchez, only got 13.4% of the vote. And actually, another Republican, Jake Elsey, finished with 13.9% of the vote. So even though Democrats got 39% of the votes in this primary, the, the runoff that it went to, which is the election that just happened, uh, had two Republicans in it, two Republicans in the field running to uh, to represent this district for the rest of the two-year term. Uh, what's interesting about this one is that uh, uniquely at uh, Jake Elsey, who was the one second-place finisher, actually won. He won by about a, a five-and-a-half-point margin, which was not expected. Polls had shown Susan Wright being ahead by about 10 to 15 points. Um, but in hindsight, there's a lot of signs that Jake Elsey, who was the, the now the congressman-elect who will be sworn in tomorrow, that he actually was a pretty good candidate and had a good chance to win. Now, the other phantom that showed up in this race is something that's going to be a theme all the way through 2022 and perhaps beyond. But when President Trump endorsed in this race, th this is kind of a new strategy because um, he's doing a lot of endorsements. And these are endorsements at the front end of primaries. Now, this was a special election, but he's already endorsing in the 2022 primaries. This is a little unusual because usually when you have, you know, the, the titular head of the party, they kind of wait for the primary to play themselves out and then pick someone. In this instance, he's picking ahead of time, and this is one of the first instances of this cycle, at least, where his pick did not work out well. And there are some rumblings of folks saying, in fact, uh, Rick Perry, who was the former governor and, of course, a cabinet member for President Trump, came out. They blamed the club for growth for Susan Wright's defeat. It, it kind of got a little bit ugly on social media. This is an unusual situation, and there there's some rumblings out here. Do you think this is a one-off that you can just kind of throw away because it's a special election? Or is there a worry here that maybe some of these early endorsements and primaries aren't going to carry over to a general election when we get to the 2022 midterm? Well, I think there's two factors here. So I do think part of it is the early endorsement. Um, if you think about it, what was the other high-profile embarrassment Trump has had with endorsing someone? It was uh, in the 2017 special election in Alabama where right. he endorsed uh, Luther Strange. He, yeah, he endorsed Luther Strange in that race, who was the appointed senator. And Luther Strange lost the, the, uh, that primary to Roy Moore. Uh, he endorsed fairly early in that race, if I recall right. Uh, Roy Moore was able to get through a divided field, finish in first, and then win the runoff by a, a decent, I think it was a 10 to 15 point margin, then went on to lose the race. Uh, you know, infamously to Doug Jones, a Democrat, by one point in Alabama, which is just, in hindsight, is an incredibly ludicrous race. So part of it is the case. Uh, I do think also part of it, though, is there's local factors that Trump's endorsements have often been of already assured candidates, right? They've been in people who have already been in office or people who have a really, really good shot that have that are, you know, high profile, big names. Uh, the rare times he stuck his neck out for people have almost backfired. The Chris Kobach endorsement in Kansas. Uh, that was pretty close. That was a very, very close primary. And that it was only within a percentage point, I think. So it's not necessarily a huge surprise that, that this is backfired. But the local factors are, I think, really important here as well. Um, Susan Wright ran a pretty weak campaign. Uh, she had the name ID, obviously. She had 
Club for Growth, Donald Trump's endorsement, Ted Cruz's endorsement. Basically, a lot of Republicans in the state uh, went to bat for Susan Wright. Uh, the thing is, the ones that went to bat for Jake Elsey were actually more important people in Texas. Uh, Rick Perry, obviously the former governor of Texas, strongly supported Jake Elsey throughout the entire campaign. Uh, he's a House state member of the State House of Representatives, uh, generally considered to be a conservative. So it's not like a conservative versus a moderate race. This is a conservative versus a conservative. Then Joe Barton, the previous representative of the district before Ron Wright, who won, who won after Barton retired, uh, he endorsed Jake Elsey. And also Dan Crenshaw endorsed Jake Elsey, along with two of the biggest newspapers in the area, the Dallas Morning News and the Fort Worth Star-Telegraph. So there's also a lot of th I thought on the ground that Susan Wright's ads, his criti her criticisms of Elsey, were really, really bothering people. Um, there are people in the Elsey camp, but also throughout Texas, were not pleased with the strategy that Susan Wright and her backers were running, which is to basically say that Jake Elsey isn't a conservative. He is a conservative. He's a very, very conservative candidate, arguably more conservative than Susan Wright. But some people were really, really bothered by that. So I think there were a bunch of different factors there that led to this result. The one other factor is Democrats could vote in this runoff. Um, Yana, Yana Sanchez, who I mentioned earlier, who was the, the leading Democrat, said after the fact that she voted for Jake Elsey in the runoff because Trump had endorsed Susan Wright. And even if Elsey was more conservative, making the candidate who Donald Trump supports lose was a win for her. So that's a factor as well, because Democrats could vote in this race too. Not a lot of them chose to, because it was two Republicans running against each other. But that was also a factor. This race was only decided by a small number of votes. There were only 39,000 votes, and the race was only separated by 1,600 votes. So, I mean, you can make the case there that, you know, if there's a lot, if, if that's not a lot of votes there, basically. It, it's very possible that if, you know, 10% of the Democrats, 10% of the vote were Democrats, and they voted 65, 35 for Elsie, that could have flipped the race. So there's a bunch of factors there, I think. Yeah, and politics is always local, uh, especially when it mm -hmm. comes to a congressional race. Let's stick with former President Trump's endorsements, one that's really raised a lot of eyebrows. Uh, the North Carolina Senate race, I, I find this race, I really wanted to ask you about this because I find this race fascinating when we're looking at the 2022 midterms. You have on the Republican side, uh, former governor and former Charlotte Mayor uh, McCrory, who I find him interesting because he, he lost in 2016 barely to to um, Governor Roy here. He He's kind of sat out all the stuff that's been going on with Trump, and Trump's taken a couple shots at him about losing twice and this sort of thing, but he, he's ahead in name recognition. He's ahead in the polls. He's ahead in money. He's running against mm -hmm. Mark Walker, who's on paper an excellent candidate and who is campaigning very, very hard. He's all over the place on local media. And then you have President Trump here about a month ago came out at the NCGOP convention and out of the clear blue sky, because I've I've interviewed officials that were in the room when it happened, they had no idea he was going to do this. He endorsed Ted Budd, Representative Ted Budd, out of the clear blue sky. Now Ted Budd was being talked about as just a spoiler candidate. Now all of a sudden he has the Trump endorsement. Once again, we have an early Trump endorsement. But in this case, what's your read on this race? They're talking about this might be the most expensive NC Senate race ever. You have kind of an older generation pre-Trump conservative and Pat McCrory. Um, I I find this race fascinating. You tell me, because I don't see any way that the Ted Budd endorsement doesn't split the Trump vote between him and Walker and McCrory wins this. What's your view of this race? Yeah. 
I would consider McCrory the prohibitive favorite for a number of reasons. The money is one thing. Um, he is raising a lot more money than Bud. They both, if you look at their last reporting, I think it was McCrory raised about $1.2 million and Bud raised about 900000 That's not a huge gap, right? Or, sorry, yeah, 900000 But that, that's not a huge gap. But you also got to consider that one hundred fifty to 200000 of that came from Ted Budd himself loaning to his own campaign. So that's closer to really seven hundred or seven hundred fifty thousand compared to one point two million. Then you got Walker pulling up the rear with about four hundred thousand. Um, it's also I, I think I posted a helpful map on Twitter. I really got to find it and post it again. But where the votes come from in North Carolina? Uh, Ted Budd and Mark Walker are from the same area. They're from the Triad region. Budd's district is like Rowan County, Randolph, Davidson, Alamance, like areas Davie County areas that are lots of Republicans that are right around Winston-Salem and Greensboro. Mark Walker's district also had all of those areas in it, pretty much. It was They were right next to each other for most of their term. And he had parts of Greensboro as well, Greensboro, Winston-Salem uh, region. So they're competing for the same voter base, basically. McCrory has the name ID. He has the Charlotte recognition with Republicans there. He has the recognition in the East as well, which is, I think, a, something people don't realize is that his defeat can really be pinned mainly on rural voters in the West, specifically the, the Appalachian region, voting for Roy Cooper. Um, if you look at the district that, what he, you know, how the districts went, the 11th district was within, I think, several points. The current design was within several points for in that, you know, governor race, whereas in the presidential race it was closer to 10 to 15 points. That's probably what swung the race, along with a few other urban areas. But out in the East, where you have a lot of Trumpy Republicans. Back in 2016, McCrory was the candidate who performed the strongest with those voters. Places like Robeson County, uh, Birdie, Hertford counties out like up in the the Black Belt region, up up on the border of Virginia. Um, so I think he has a very very big advantage because Walker and Bud are competing for the same base of not only voters but endorsements because they're from the same region. Whereas you know McCrory has Charlotte to himself basically, aside from Rowan County, if you consider that to be Charlotte area. He has the East. He has name ID. He has name ID in the West. He's been a conservative radio host for several years now. He has through that. I think he's in a really good spot. And I, I think Trump's endorsement of Bud is frankly baffling and in, in, in both in hindsight and at the time. It, it just an extraordinarily strange endorsement. And it's one of those ones, just like in Texas six, he endorsed the candidate, the club for growth endorsed the club for growth does not have the best record in primaries and in general elections. They're, they're called the club for shrinkage for a reason. So him going kind of pivoting to whoever the club for growth endorses kind of strategically poor decision. And I think it's in Alabama too, endorsing Mo Brooks, who's also endorsed by the club for growth. Well, I think he's really getting led wrong in some of these races, to be honest. I mean, I know I interviewed, I was filling in for our mutual friend, Joe Catanacci. You've been on his show in the Wilmington area. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had two Republican official party official that was in the room when it happened hardcore Trump guy, down-the-line Trump supporter, just on air, on the record, like, this hurt the party. He should not have done this. They were not happy with it at all. They felt like it big-footed the party. Um, Walker has been campaigning all over the place. He's an affable guy. Mm-hmm. He's a good candidate. Uh, Bud's not campaigning at all other than running radio and TV spots all over the place for replaying the Trump endorsement. This this just looks like the recipe for a disaster of an endorsement for President Trump, and it looks like for McCrory, um, you can, again, talking about all elections are local, like the Texas on the ground. One of the things on the ground in the state of North Carolina is 
This is not the electorate that Pratt McCrory left. The fastest growing percentage of the electorate in North Carolina is actually unaffiliated voters, which is what independents are mm-hmm. called in North Carolina. Yep. And he has a good shot with them. There's a lot of them still in the Mecklenburg area, Wake County. Are they going to go for Ted Budd, who is basically notable for being a gun store owner, a backbencher member of the Freedom Caucus with no real accomplishments to his name, and the Trump endorsement? Like, that's what really gets me at the Bud thing is it's if he had endorsed Walker, that would have made some sense. Walker is not running a he's running a decent campaign on the ground, but it's not really taken off in the polls or in the fundraising. But that would have made sense, right? I mean, Walker has a better name idea, has credibility. He was the head of the Republican Study Committee at one point, which is the like the head caucus of conservative Republicans. Uh, I don't frankly get why he endorsed Ted Budd. I, I don't think a lot of people in North Carolina get that, and I think it's. I don't think it's changed the race too much, if we're being honest. It, the dynamics haven't shifted. The fundraising's not moved to Bud. The polling's not moved to Bud, really. I mean, there's a year to go, but if that's all Ted Bud has is the Trump endorsement, he's got to do something more. You got you, you can't just run off of that endorsement in this state. There's a lot of other types of Republicans here than just the Trump ones. Yeah, and it goes back to the original point of there's a reason you bring in the heavy guns. Uh, we saw it with uh, former President Obama. You wait for the primary, and then you come in at the end with your biggest stick, which is the biggest name you got, and mm-hmm. that's usually a former president as the head of the party. For him to do this early when there's all this other stuff going on surrounding him, it just seems like a quick way to diminish what would already be kind of your fading brand going into 2022 and 2024, right? Yeah, and it's it's just it's really baffling. I think he's setting himself up for some really major embarrassments with these with these primary selection or with these endorsements. If I mean, Alabama's also one that could be set up. Uh, he endorsed Mo Brooks, a candidate who is old and who has never passed a single bill in Congress, and is from Huntsville, not from Birmingham or or Montgomery, from Huntsville, which is not a huge region in the state. It's a big city, but the rest around it isn't that big. You have Katie Boyd Britt raising a ton of money, has the the endorsement of the venerable Senator Richard Shelby, who's beloved in Alabama, and she can be there for 40 years if she's elected. She's only 40. She could be there for a very long time. I, I think he's made some very strategic blunders endorsing this early and endorsing these candidates. They're not really the best. Now, some of these, though, we understand why he's doing them early, because as opposed to a national strategy for electing a majority for the Republican Party is some of these are just straight up what I've gone to calling the Trump vendetta ride. Uh, We have in Ohio now, he has uh, endorsed Max Miller right off the jump. That's Anthony Gonzalez's seat. Now, that one, we know why Trump is personally invested in that, because Anthony Gonzalez was one of the few Republicans who voted on the second impeachment. So we know why that one's going on. But then there's some there's others. There's uh, there's statewide races. Uh, Jody Hintz for secretary of state in Georgia. Uh, We just saw going back to Texas for a minute. Uh, He passed on what he had previously called his favorite Bush, George P. Bush, that's Jeb's Mm -hmm. son, uh, who's going to be running for AG of Texas, and he endorsed Ken Paxton, despite... So there there seems to be... That makes sense for a pattern, but the rest of this seems kind of scattershot, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the Paxton one is particularly embarrassing, in my opinion. Who's under indictment, by the way. Yeah. Everyone in Texas says he's dead in the water in polling. I mean, you've got two credible Republicans, George P. Bush... And then a Supreme Court justice, um, names escaping me, but she's a, one of the first Latina on the, the Supreme Court of, of Texas. You basically have two very credible Republicans. Paxton is under invest- investigation, is very unpopular. 
that's another one that could blow up in his face. Like people talking about the Bush thing mattering, it kind of matters, but like the quality of a candidate Ken Paxton is, Trump endorsing him doesn't get rid of the problems he has. It's a Band-Aid. It, it, and doing it so early is really, really strange. The highest endorsement, you, you get the sorts of things. You get the ones of people who are already in office. That makes sense as well. But boy, is he making some really, really strange choices. Let me ask you this because I'm just curious about it. But did, did he give George P. Bush a get-out-of-jail-free card here? Because if, if George P. Bush turns around and wins that race despite Trump going for Kim Paxton against him— he he may have just saved George P. Bush's political career from himself, did he not? Uh, I don't. I think the the Trumpiness of George P. Bush is kind of overstated. He's a Bush. Uh, he is very beloved by Texas. He he basically he's very very popular in Texas. He behind Greg Abbott in twenty fourteen. He was the second twenty eighteen. He was the second best performing Republican statewide. He's well known in the Rio Grande Valley in particular. Um, he does. He's uh, Hidalgo County. He's been supportive. Uh, like basically, he's trying to build up the Republican base in that region. He can speak Spanish. He's he's Jeb and Columba's son, and so he is Hispanic um, by by heritage on his mother's side. Uh, I don't think I don't think him not getting it matters that much in terms of his procedure where he is. It, backing Trump, it, he's not a he's not a populist politically. He's an institutional Republican like the rest of the Bushes. He's just a very very popular one. And in Texas, honestly, not having the Trump endorsement is not a bad thing in Texas. Trump's never been that popular in Texas. Uh, they voted for Ted Cruz over Trump by a large margin in the primary. Trump ran way behind John Cornyn and then pretty much the rest of the entire Republican ticket in the state. So I don't think it really honestly hurts him that much among the Republican base there. Let's zoom out for just a second. Um, explain to folks, because you're the election expert, 2022 midterms, people keep talking about cycles. They talk about uh, the first term, first midterm elections always going against the party in power. Tell people why that is, why folks think it's not just what's happening today in the headlines. There's a cycle to these midterms, why they matter, why they have a sort of a rhythm to them as you look through history. Uh, just walk people through for a second why everybody thinks the 2022 midterms, even despite their selves a little bit, the Republicans should have a good year in 2022. Yeah, so basically throughout American history, we've always had some variation of a two-party system. It's just the nature of what we are. We have one side and you have the other side, and they're, bro they're broadly big tents. I know people, the demise of the Republican Party is vastly overstated, along with the demise of the Democratic Party under Reagan. But going back into history, there's only been a couple of elections in the last 150 years where the party in power in a midterm gains seats. We're talking 2002, which was right after 9-11, when Bush had sky-high approval ratings and it was a matter of national unity. You had uh, 1998, which frankly, which was a sixth year, which the sixth year, which is even worse than the, the first, the first uh, midterm. Clinton gained seats because of impeachment being unpopular. Those are the sorts of things that has to happen. I think 52 was another example, or 54, one of them, but basically, what we're such a divided country politically, it's hard to get more than 55-45 one way or the other. And right now, it's almost as close to 50-50 as you can get. You look at the presidential race, it's a little bit misleading. You look at the raw House votes and Senate votes and everything else, we're pretty evenly divided. And so part of it's enthusiasm. The When the party is in power, they get complacent. They do things that are unpopular, and the other side takes advantage. Sometimes it's also... Uh, economic situations. 2010, the economy wasn't 
roaring up again. And also you had Obamacare, which people did not like. You had some other things the administration was doing, big wave. 26 to 2018, Republican uh, year under Trump, Democrats took back the House. Why did they take back the House? Uh, because the Republican health care plan was absurdly unpopular and the tax cut plan wasn't popular enough, even with a roaring economy. Uh, by all means, one of the best economies in American history. 2014 under Obama, he just won re-election by a pretty good margin. But he, his house, the Republican House majority expands big. Republicans almost flip seats that would be unimaginable today, like Rochester. They almost unseated Louis Slaughter, uh, a, a mainstay of, of politics in New York. Those are the sorts of seats that became vulnerable. He, so basically, it's very difficult for a president's party to gain seats. And right now, the House majority is only decided by about five seats. If Democrats had lost five more seats, they wouldn't have the House right now. So Democrats are already starting at a pretty major disadvantage because usually when parties are losing seats in the midterm, they're losing closer to 20 or 40. 10 would be pretty historically low in terms of midterm losses. And then on the Senate side, um, you know, that's a little bit less of a clear case. Republicans actually gained seats in 2018 because they flipped a lot of states that Democrats had no business holding. This time, the Senate field is actually reasonably favorable for Democrats. There's a couple of pickup opportunities that they have in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. But even there, Republicans could end up with as many as 54 seats, and they have 50 right now. Uh, it's, it's just a very challenging thing to, for a party in power to hold power or to expand their power. Keep in mind, losing seats doesn't necessarily mean you lose a majority, right? If you have 230 seats and you lose five of them, that's still a loss, but it's not enough to lose your majority. But if you got what we have right now, where it's a five-seat majority or a six-seat majority, all of a sudden you just got to have a couple more of those knife-edge seats flip. On top of that, you have redistricting. And redistricting, uh, Republican states are gaining more seats. Some Democratic states are losing them. And Republicans are projected to gain some seats just through redistricting alone. The speculation is they could gain as many as six to eight seats through redistricting alone in the states they control. So all these factors combined make it very possible that Republicans take back the House, even in an even or Democratic favoring generic ballot year which is unlikely, historically speaking, in a, in a midterm, especially a first-term midterm. It, one man's redistricting is, of course, another man's gerrymandering, but that's another yes. topic for another day. Uh, just real quick, we, I know we're looking like we're going to have a really combustible winter. Looks like we're going to have some deadlock in Congress. We, what's your gut feeling right now? Uh, these hold both. The Democrats lose the House. They lose the Senate. They lose both. How do you feel this is going to shake out for the 2022 midterms? My gut feeling is Republicans take the House. Don't take this as a prediction. There's still 15 months left to go until these elections. But my gut sure. feeling would be Republicans do take the House. By what margin depends on how bad polling gets for Biden. Historically, presidents tend to be unpopular in their first midterm. So it's quite possible he could be underwater. There's talk he would need to be about 55 to 60 percent approval to not lose any seats. Um, it also depends on redistricting. Like states like Michigan, California are really going to matter. They have independent commissions. California in particular could give Democrats some additional seats, along with New York and Illinois. The Senate is a little bit less favorable. The, the toss-up seats in the Senate right now are Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, which Trump uh, Trump lost. But Trump won both of those states in 2016, and then Biden won both of them in 2020. Those are the, the big two seats. Those are Republican-controlled. Uh, the biggest Republican pickup opportunity would be New Hampshire if Chris Sununu uh, comes in along with Arizona and Georgia, which were states that Trump won in 2016 and narrowly lost in 2020. So, you know, it could be anywhere from Democrats having 52 seats, 53 seats, if it's a really, really 
if if they get a historically good midterm, uh, they could you know gain Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. I would say they're, at best they gain one, and it's quite possible Republicans gain anywhere from two to or from one to four seats, which would be them winning, holding Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and then winning New Hampshire, winning Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia. That would be the Republican maximum scenario. I think it's closer to 50-50 for the Senate that Democrats retain it, which they only need 50 votes for because they have the vice president. They just need to lose a single seat for Republicans to take over. And in the House, I would say closer to 60-40 or 70-30 to odds that Republicans take that back. And that's just based on the historical tendencies. We really don't know how bad things get for Democrats if inflation continues to rise, if the economy doesn't recover as well, if there's some crisis in the middle of Biden's presidency, his first term. All of that could change things. Yeah. A lot can still happen, which means we definitely need to have you back again. Uh, he's Eric Cunningham. Uh, he's the head of Elections Daily, elections-daily.com. Tell folks where they can find your stuff. They can find the Elections Daily stuff. Y'all doing podcasts, you're doing live streams, you're doing mapping. Tell people where they can find your stuff because I know I rely on it and it'd be a great resource for folks to check out for them to build up their own media information sources from your independent organization. Yeah, so you can find us, as, as Andrew said, at elections-daily.com. We post our articles there as well as uh, we have some tools that you can use to change elections yourself. We have a, a map of possible congressional district lines. We have, uh, we have a tool that you can modify how states vote. You can see how it would be if North Carolina went, if Mecklenburg County went 5% more Democratic. That's a tool you can do on our site. On Twitter, you can find us at elections underscore daily, and we post, we post our articles there along with other things. We're on YouTube as well, Elections Daily. Should be up there right at the top. We post regular live coverage of elections as they're happening, along with other informative shows. We're actually launching uh, two shows this week, or we're relaunching. Uh, the, so basically we have two. One of them is a interview series with former congressmen, members of Congress, and the other is a new historical series on presidents of the United States and their their place in history. And those are starting uh, Friday, and, and or those are, they may actually, by the time this goes up, They'll probably be right there, but they're starting Friday the 30th and then Monday, whatever Monday is, um, you know, uh, Monday the second. 5th. Oh, yeah, the 2nd of August. Sorry. So those are two series we're launching. You can find us there. You can find me on Twitter at D.E. Cunningham, too. And we also have a bunch of other contributors you can find on our website under the contributor section. You guys do great work, and I appreciate you greatly. Eric Cunningham, thank you so much for the time today, my friend. Yep. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. You know, one of those exceptions to the midterm rule of the out-of-power party gaining seats that Eric mentioned was 1998. Now, I found that interesting because 1998 was the first election that I got to vote in. And if you remember, or you may not, that was the impeachment election. They were getting ready to impeach then-President Bill Clinton, which they did that following January, and the Republicans lost 20-some-odd seats, which was unusual at the time. Midterm elections are always strange anyway. But in the environment we currently have, there's a whole lot of dynamicism that we haven't seen, at least in a while, maybe not ever before. We still have the looming issue of COVID floating out there. We have a possibility of some true gridlock in Congress, whether or not they pass the current infrastructure bill that's up for debate. And then there's the factor that just nobody really knows how it's going to go with former President Donald J. Trump. Is he going to be a team player that tries to elect Republicans to build a majority? Or is he going to continue to focus on his vendetta ride of just getting payback against folks that he's upset with, either because of the impeachment or other criticisms of him? 
Since the former president was on the ballot last time, a lot of things have happened. January 6th has happened. We have now six, seven months of the Biden administration to change some of the perspective on things. We have a lot of unknowns. We have unknown unknowns, as the late Donald Rumsfeld would say. And we don't know that we've had a midterm like this. Historically, Republicans should be doing great in this coming midterm. Will they? We'll have to see. Meanwhile, our Democrat friends have their own issues. They're going to be trying to support their president who is in power. They're going to be trying to hold on to their majority in the House and their 50-50 tie with the tiebreaker of Vice President Harris in the Senate. Will they? I don't know. We'll find out. That's why we're going to continue to talk to people like Eric Cunningham, the folks at Election Daily who give us good information to try to discern our times and understand what's going on so we're not just reacting to things, we're understanding them as they're happening. Yeah, we can use a historical president for the midterms, but we've never had a 2022 midterm before. If it's anywhere near the hot mess that some of us suspect it will be, thankfully, we'll only have to have it once. That's it for this edition of Hertel. We're so thankful for you to continue to support us. More exciting things going on. Uh, the guests that we have lined up through the, as we start to turn in the fall here are really exciting. We're going to continue to hit some topics in culture and politics that we've been wanting to do. We're not just going to talk about straight politics. We're also going to talk about things like the opioid crisis. We're going to talk about things going on in culture. We're going to talk about the things that matter because if we don't fix problems that matter, what's the point of having political views in the first place? We're not going to duck hard issues. We're going to attack them head on, and we're not just going to chase trends. We're going to try to understand our times, push ahead with good information, and continue to have adult conversations about the things that really matter. And you've responded to it. Thankfully, you have found our little program. Continue to share it with folks, whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, whatever the case may be. Please make sure you leave a comment, leave a rating, and share it on your own social media to other people. Those are the ways folks found our program. We'll keep doing it as long as you keep listening. Also, the YouTube page. We're working on getting the video content done as soon as it's up to snuff that we feel like it's a good quality product worthy of your time. We'll be getting that out to you, so make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already. Our partnership with Young Voices continues, and as soon as they teach this particular hillbilly how to do fancy things like video editing, we think we'll have some interesting stuff for you. We're excited. We're thrilled. It's a privilege to be able to do this with you, and we appreciate you so much. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time with us. Wherever we find you with this, hope you and yours are well. Hope you're well until we talk again. Y'all take care. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.